All right, let's try this again. How's that? Is that loud enough, even in the back? Way cool. Good. Getting there anyway. Somehow it feels right to just start slowly tonight. You had your talking. How was it? Good and bad, huh? Problem was you had to talk to people and listen to them. And it's very sweet in a way to connect. It's very tender. And at the same time, it's kind of exhausting, isn't it? Isn't it nice to come back to silence? There's an openness from the retreat that is just present in us now, no matter what the journey has been. Zen Master Gensei says, trailing my stick I go down to the garden edge. Shouldering sandals, we wade, a monk and I, into the narrow stream. I dabble in the flow, delighted by the shallowness of the water, gaze at the flagging, admiring how firm the stones are. The point in life is to know what's enough. Why envy those other world immortals when the happiness held in one inch square heart can fill the whole space between heaven and earth? And you get quiet and then take a walk in the desert and one bush or flower is like a Zen garden. Have you noticed, you know, one twisted branch and a few of those orange or yellow flowers kind of shouting? Um, it's fantastic. So this evening I want to pick up and continue from Howie's talk, thinking about how to return, as we will, to the engagement in our everyday life picking up from loving the house that ego built. Um, another language for what Howie was speaking of last night what was how to be in the world, but not of the world. That is to say, um, how to enter into the dimension of time and thought and so forth, but knowing its tentativeness, its ephemeral nature, it's in some ways its unreality, even though it's also something that calls to us as real. And you'll see when we end with a ritual tomorrow morning, um, we offer for those who would like these blessing cords, which we'll explain more about tomorrow for anyone who wants to do it. And their they're colored, either a red or a gold color, is the color of the th robes of the monk or a nun. And what you do is carry the robes into the marketplace. You're like a monk or a nun in drag, basically, going into the marketplace with the scent of the temple back into the into the world of commerce and so forth. There's a story of a, of a 
an old nun who'd been meditating for a long time and always thought that there was some enlightenment to be had somewhere and if only she practiced enough and she did for a long time and but was always striving for for something and finally she said to the abbot I, you know or abbess I've had enough um, I, I don't want to be in the monastery anymore just practicing in this way I, I either want enlightenment or or I'm I'm done can I have permission to go up into the mountains and find a cave or a hut or somewhere and just give give it my all and knowing that she was ripe the abbot or abbess said sure you may have permission go do that so she took her belongings what she needed and set off up this great mountain path and because of her sincerity um, there appeared on the path coming down the Bodhisattva Manjusri who said to appear to people with a sword of wisdom in his hand sometimes to appear to people when their sincerity is the greatest in this case Manjusri was walking down the mountain kind of singing to himself with a huge bundle on his back she was carrying her pack of things up the mountain and they met and had a little courteous exchange and then she could feel this looked like a wise person so she looked at him and said say old man do you know anything of this enlightenment that I've been seeking for so many years and with that he simply let go of the bundle and it dropped to the ground and smiled and she got it she said oh it's not up there it's not someplace else it's just let go just be here and so she let her bundle drop and they were just standing there smiling and really happy liberated you know that's what you've done here this place isn't so much a place to learn stuff the retreat this is the dump actually <laughs> this is the place to leave stuff so that you can see with beginners mind so that you can see anew so it was let go of they're both standing there free and then she says so now what and Manjusri reached down and picks up his bundle and walks off toward town <laughs> and that's the dance it's really what Howie was talking about last night about the capacity to let go and then having let go to hold what we have of this human incarnation lightly to return but in a different way and to let go in that spaciousness of mind that Howie's talk you know, embodied and offered to us to that which is outside of time and outside of strategy and grasping and so forth to let go in this way then allows us when we see with this clarity to see the paradox of incarnation which it is it's really an amazing thing and we get more comfortable with paradox we get comfortable well here's Carl Jung's uh, description he says the erotic instinct I don't think I read this did I the erotic instinct you know about that you've noticed it is something questionable and will always be so no matter what kind of laws people try to make about who's straight or gay or you know who should or shouldn't he said impossible because it belongs on one hand to our original animal nature which will exist as long as we have an animal body and on the other hand it's connected to the highest form of spirit but it blooms only when spirit and instinct are in harmony if one aspect or the other is missing 
then an injury occurs. It slips into the pathological. <clears throat> Too much of the animal disfigures the civilized human being. Too much culture makes for a sick animal. So this is our paradox, spirit and body, or, you know, Howie or whoever talked about it. You need to remember your Buddha nature, this timeless wakefulness that is your home. And you are, maybe it's Trudy, and you also have to remember your social security number, you know, while it, while it lasts anyway, and your zip code and all of that. That there's no self, and then there is self, but it's self is changing, self is tentative. Uh, the poet T.S. Eliot wrote, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still even among these rocks. Or Zen Master Isa, who wrote these lines. He writes, dew evaporates and all our world is dew. Everything disappears. Dew evaporates and all our world is dew. So dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. Now listen again. He wrote these on the death of his daughter. Dew evaporates and all our world is dew. So dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. That this paradox is both to step out of the complexity of our plans and all of those things and rest in the timeless, rest in the openness of awareness and mindfulness itself. And in this, everything becomes more precious, more beautiful, more worthy of care because we see how ephemeral it is. So there's the personal, the self, and the selfless that kind of dance back and forth. And the bridge between them is love. Love is what the great awareness is. It includes everything. And love is what brings us back to tend this precious world. Now how he talked about thought and stepping out of the thought of past and future and even of the present and just living in the reality of the present. And at the same time as he indicated, it's not because thought is the enemy or that it's bad. It's totally fine to plan. You need a plan. You know, half the time it doesn't come out that way. So you need to understand what planning is. It's a hunch, right? It's a little way of managing your anxiety. It's also a way of setting a direction. It has its value. Here's Albert Einstein. Explains it to you, like Howie. He says, The intuitive mind is a sacred gift. So the intuition that senses this vastness. The intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. So thought is a good servant but a poor master when it runs the show over and over and over and over as you've seen. And so here you've had the experience of stepping out of that out of that reality. And you can see how mind creates samsara and all the thoughts and dramas. You step out of that house. 
And yes, there's healing that needs to happen of things that we carry, absolutely. But when we step out, there's a way in which we also let go of our, our loyalty to our suffering. You know, we're so loyal to our suffering and what's happened. You need to heal it in some way. Oh, nobly born, it's not who you are. It's part of the conditioning and history. And so one of the most beautiful ways to understand this that comes from the story of Bodhisattva Manjushri is the, is the archetype, the image, the imagination, this enormous imagination from the Indian tradition um, of the Bodhisattva. Um, and it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever encountered in, in human imagination. Because if you read certain of these Buddhist texts, they talk about universes being born, appearing, and disappearing like the Big Bang or the Big Flash, whatever it was. That's just one, you know, and they come and go. And these universes are made of fire and stars and light, but they're universes made of thought and of perfumes and universes made of stone and universes made of um, all the kind of possible elements. And it said in every one of these galaxies and universes, and the numbers are like Wes would like. You know, we were, we were, when we were arrived here, Wes was just telling me something he was reading about as he talked to you, you know, that there are 50 billion trillion stars. That means that if everybody on the earth could name as many stars as they wanted, you know, okay, Jennifer and, you know, you each could name 1.5 trillion stars, right? That's your particular lot. Um, as many grains of sand as there are along the banks of the 1,500 miles of Ganges, each of those grains of sands is a universe. And in those universes is that many grains of sands of stars and galaxies. And in every one, in every atom of every one, is the potential for a Buddha to awaken. That's how many Buddhas there are. Things like that, you know, little kind of visions of every possibility. And what it means is that no matter what the circumstances, the possibility of knowing what's true, of knowing who we are, is there, inherent in existence itself. Now the word bodhisattva is a compound word. Bodhi means being, and sattva means, so excuse me, sattva means being, and bodhi means awakened, or awakening. So it is a being who's committed to awakening, no matter where they are. Committed to compassion and liberation. So it's said that even if the sun should arise in the west, and the world turn upside down, the bodhisattva still has one way, one simple way, which is no matter what the circumstances, the way of the bodhisattva is to say, yes, this too, and freedom is possible here as well. Now there are vows, bodhisattva vows, that have been taken since Siddhartha Gautama took his vows with the previous Buddha, Dipankara, if you read all these wonderful mythological stories. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to awaken them all. Um, Shanti Deva's version of the vows. May I be a guard for those who need protection, a guide for those on the path. 
a raft, a boat for those to cross who need to cross the flood, a lamp in the darkness, a resting place for the weary, a healing medicine for all the sick. And may I do this for as long as beings endure in these vast multiple, tenfold universes, enduring until all beings together awaken and are freed from sorrow. Kind of a serious vow to take, right? Dalai Lama takes that every morning. He does, or Diane Ackerman's version. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, an architect of peace. And to take the bodhisattva vows is to turn our life, our life force, our being in the direction of awakening no matter what. Now bodhisattvas rely on a deep knowing. The kind of knowing that you have been returning to, experiencing, imbibing, discovering as you sit here. Bodhisattvas, the the way of the bodhisattva relies on the knowing of the Four Noble Truths that Spring taught. Knowing that there is dukkha, queasiness, unsatisfactoriness, that life has joy and sorrow, gain and loss, praise and blame, birth and death. Knowing that there's suffering and also knowing that there's an end to suffering. As Helen Keller says, This world is full of suffering and is also full of the overcoming of it. Isn't that beautiful? It's full of suffering and it's also full of the overcoming of it. Or Elie Wiesel, the Nobel Prize winner, who writes, Suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. So the Bodhisattva knows somehow that there is suffering, but that it's not the end of the story. That there's something bigger and freer and more liberating And that liberation comes with this sense of stillness and openness and vastness that you also have touched in moments here, sitting and walking in the desert. My teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, called this everyday nirvana. And he said it's the same as any other nirvana that you can imagine. It is the real deal. Anyone can see that if grasping and aversion were with us all day and night without ceasing, who could ever stand it? Under that condition, living beings become insane or die. But instead, we survive because there are natural periods of coolness, of ease, of wholeness. We long to go to sleep for a good night's sleep, don't we, to rest. And in fact, these cooling of the fires of grasping and fear sustain us. They, have, they are periods of rest 
that bring us refreshment, aliveness, wellness? Why don't we feel thankful for this everyday nirvana? For all the moments when we do just look at that flaming yellow bush out there in the desert or feel our step or drive along the freeway in LA and notice it's sunset and see the color of the sky. So the bodhisattvas know suffering and they know its end. End of a little story for you. You've heard the first part, at least the middle part of it. So it turns out that the baby owl was named Alberta. She's fine. She got there, she was really hungry and ate two mice in a row, which is more than normally they just eat one mouse, but she was quite hungry. She's doing well and she will be repatriated back as the woman in charge of the office here said, this is mental physics owl, you know. So she'll be brought back here to join her sibling who's still in the nest in a few weeks when she can fly and is quite strong. And someone left me a note just to explain the connection that so many of us had with Alberta, with this owl. If you remember back to the first talk, that it's a little five line, I mean five, six word poem that says, that baby owl got our wings. This from Thich Nhat Hanh, I was teaching with him a few years ago in LA, UCLA, this whole big conference on Eastern Western psychology. And the governor was there in the front row with, the, with his wife, with Maria, and you know, all these millions of psychologists, which LA needs, I know, but anyway. And um, he began with this story he said, the day my mother died, and he really loved his mother, I wrote in my journal, a serious misfortune of life has arrived. And I suffered for the loss of her for more than a year after she passed. And then one night in the highlands in Vietnam, I was in a little hut in the mountain monastery, and I dreamed of her and I felt myself sitting with her as if we were having a wonderful talk she was young and beautiful, her hair was flowing down, and it was so pleasant to sit with her again and talk as if she had never died. And then I woke up, it was two in the morning, and I got up and I had the impression she was still with me. And I understood the idea of having lost my mother was just an idea, a thought. It was obvious she was still alive in me, that that sense of time dropped away. And I opened the door and walked among the tea plants in the moonlight and noticed my mother was still with me. She became the moonlight caressing my skin as she had so often done, so tenderly and sweet. And each time my feet touched the earth, I knew my mother was there with me. I knew this body was not mine alone, but a living continuation of my mother and father, my grandparents and great-grandparents of all my ancestors. These feet that I saw as my feet were actually our feet. Together my mother and I were leaving footprints in the damp soil. And this wisdom of the Bodhisattva 
is the wisdom of vastness and timelessness. That when we know this, and you do know this, some part of you knows this as surely as you know your name, that you're not just limited to this body or perceptions or thoughts. The Bodhisattva relies on this deep knowing to navigate through the world of change and form and thought and social security and all these things that we do, you know. But it's again as if there's a foot in both worlds in the world and yet not of the world. Now the Bodhisattva also relies on deep intention. As many as those great galaxies as grains of sands on the Ganges, the path of the Bodhisattva is a hundred thousand mahakalpas of patience and compassion and steadiness and truthfulness and meditation so forth. A mahakalpa is the amount of time it takes a bird with a silk scarf in its beak that drags it across the highest mountain on earth, Mount Everest, once every hundred years, wearing it away a little by that silk scarf, to wear down Mount Everest with a silk scarf every hundred years. That's one mahakalpa. A hundred thousand of those puppies, right? And then four immensities. And you've done your bodhisattva practice. So you think, oh, I did, you know, ten, nine days at mental physics. How many more, you know, mahakalpas do I have to go? It seems like a drop in the bucket. And the reason that it's actually helpful to say this is because it takes it outside of the realm of time. That what we're doing can't be, all right, I get my day planner and see I've done this many days and I've been this patient and I've been, you know, done this metta and I've done this. It's not about getting, you know, bodhisattva points for one mahakalpa when there's 999,000 of them left to do. It's a different dimension. And the dimension is really the dimension of that which is timeless. That it's not from here to there. You think, okay, I, I take the vow to save all sentient beings. So where am I going to start? Well, maybe my family, right? I'm going to save them. You know what? They don't want you to save them. I don't even notice this. <laughs> it doesn't work very well, does it? And you tried. I know you tried. You know? In fact, even saving one being is pretty tough, isn't it? Huh? So the point isn't to run around and save all beings in that way. Bishop Tutu from Africa explains it. He says, in Africa, when we ask someone how they are, they always answer in the plural. We are well, we are not so well. And that's because there's a sense, even if this man is well, perhaps his grandmother is not well. So he will say, we are not well. Because in Africa, we understand that it is us and not someone else. It's plural because we're all together in it. Here from the Taoist tradition. A Taoist sage was sitting in his mountain cabin meditating and a group of Confucian scholars decided to visit to speak to him about what was proper and not, which is part of Confucian teachings and all the rules of society. And they hiked all the way up the mountain and saw him sitting in his hut naked in front of them and they were shocked and said, what are you doing sitting in your hut without any pants on? <laughs> and the sage smiled. He said, the entire universe is my hut. This little hut is my pants. 
what are you fellows doing inside my pants? So when we misunderstand the bodhisattva vows, we think that it's sort of like social work or something like that. And this isn't a put down of social workers because that's a glorious occupation. But it's not about going around harassing your friends and saving them. It is about understanding that you are not separate from this universe. You are this universe. And your awakening is the awakening of all. So Thich Nhat Hanh said, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if all, everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. So it only takes one person in this vast universe. One person to remain calm and centered. And you know who that person is. As Miss Piggy would say, moi. You know, right? So the bodhisattva's task isn't to go out and mess with things, but it is to set the compass of your heart in the direction of compassion and freedom no matter what. The bodhisattva relies on the deep knowing of suffering and its end of this vastness. And the bodhisattva relies on the deep intention that no matter what happens, my way is the way of compassion and freedom for myself and all beings. And these are your treasures. You already understand this. This is the treasure you carry. And the treasure then manifests in different ways. The treasure of this commitment of the bodhisattva of compassion manifests as virtue. And we took the precepts at the beginning of the retreat. You know... And virtue isn't something you're supposed to be good. You're supposed to be virtuous, kind of Victorian stuff. Not because you're supposed to, but because it's joyful, because it makes you happy. And you see it, you sit here, and you realize that it's hard to sit after a day of killing and stealing. It just doesn't work. It's hard to be with yourself when you haven't been virtuous. And it doesn't take a lot. You know, you begin to notice all this stuff and regrets... A man writes to the IRS, I haven't been able to sleep knowing I cheated on my taxes last year since I failed to fully disclose my earnings. So I've enclosed a bank check, you know, anonymous check for $2,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll return the rest. But when you start to get quiet and look, the virtue of the heart is what you want to do. Like this poem that I have from the, you know, the greatest calligrapher in America, the, the master calligrapher Lord Reynolds, I love. He writes, a bug crawls over the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get, you know. And in the monastery, you learn to be careful not to step on the ants, you know, and to notice the wild fowl in the forest and the, you have a little stick at night to tap the path so that the cobras and the other snakes would hear you coming because they feel it and then they move out of the way. And you just learn a reverence for life, to not to kill, not to steal. 
not to speak what's false, to say what's true and kind or useful in some, some simple way. And intention is so clear. If you're in conflict with somebody, I mean, when I get in conflict with my wife, which, you know, Dharma teachers, whatever, it doesn't happen, right? But just in case it might have happened, <laughs> periodically, frequently, whatever. Um, if I'm trying to be right and, you know, defend myself, you know that little position? You know, um, it doesn't go all that well. But if I pause and take a breath and notice, especially if I'm angry or upset, what's really going on? Oh, I feel hurt underneath the anger or I feel afraid in some fashion. And I say, well, I feel hurt or afraid. But even better if I go, what's my best intention? What's my highest intention? Oh, I love this person. I want to speak from that love. It changes everything. To check in with your intention allows the virtue to manifest. And you know, it's a practice. You do it over and over. You take it over and over. John invited his mom over for dinner. During the meal, his mother couldn't help noticing how beautiful John's roommate was. She'd been suspicious for a while about the relationship between them, and watching the two interact over the evening, she began to wonder if there was more to what was going on than met the eye. Sensing his mother's thoughts, John said, I know what you might be thinking, but I assure you Carrie and I are just roommates. About a week later, Carrie came to John and said, You know, ever since your mother came to dinner, I've been able, unable to find that beautiful sil silver soup ladle we use. You don't suppose she did anything with it, do you? I don't know, but I'll email her just in case. So he said, Dear Mom, I'm not saying you did anything with it, but it's strange this silver ladle disappeared, and do you know anything about it? And she received an email back later in the day. Dear son, I'm not saying that you sleep with Carrie or not. But the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the silver ladle by now. <laughs> Love, Mom. And the top of it says, don't lie to your mother. You know, it just doesn't work. It's a practice or as a, you know... So the bodhisattva relies on virtue because it's beautiful, because the heart knows that this is the way to live. The bodhisattva also relies on something else you've learned here, which is the connection with one another. You know, as, as Bishop Tutu talked about, it's called sangha, that nobody does it alone, not this whole path. It's just not how it works. We need one another. We need the support. I mean, there are times when you would have run out of this room screaming or at least run to the refrigerator as fast as you could or, you know, distract you or the video store or something. You know you would have. But it was embarrassing. You know, all these people are here and they're sitting quietly. So, okay, I'll do it. Fran Peavy, activist friend. One day I was walking through the Stanford University campus with a friend when I saw a crowd of people with cameras and video equipment on a little hillside. They were clustered around a pair of chimpanzees, a male running loose, and a female on a light chain about 25 feet long. It turned out the male was from this Marine World Africa kind of amusement park. The female was being studied at Stanford, and who I thought were the spectators were actually scientists and publicity people trying to get them to mate. The male was eager, you know how they can be. He grunted, grabbed the female's chain, tugged. She whimpered and backed away, not into it. He pulled again, she pulled back. 
Watching the chimps' faces, I began to feel sympathy for the female. Suddenly, the female chimp yanked her chain out of the male's grasp, and to my amazement, she walked through the crowd straight over to me and took my hand. Then she led me across the circle to the only other two women in the crowd, and she joined hands with the four of us. We stood in a circle. I remember the feeling of that rough palm against mine. The little chimp had recognized us and reached out across all the years of evolution to form her own women's support group. So when you go back, you need community. You know, and there are, there's Inside LA, you hear, hear about it tomorrow morning in communities in Vancouver and San Francisco and in the Inquiring Mind, all those lists. But more than that, you need to find people to sit with periodically, to remind you and to offer the gift of your reminding back and forth. We support one another in this. And when you lose your bearing and your wisdom and the bodhisattva compass sort of gets buried a little bit in the sand and so forth, somebody else's compass is clear. And you go, oh, thank you. And you know this. You've learned this here. You felt the support. And so it becomes part of the treasure that you carry of wisdom. Yes, we rely on one another. And we support one another in this beautiful way. You've also learned, as the Bodhisattva does, not only does the Bodhisattva not do it alone, but they do it in concert with all beings. You've learned a kind of trust. Because here you've sat through all these storms, mostly as Howie pointed out, they were imaginary storms, but they were big. They were, you know, like Mark Twain said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. You know, the same here, all these storms of restlessness and fear and the trauma that you carry and the longing and, you know, the beauty and the spiritual ideals and the, you know, everything else, stuff in your body, and you learn to sit with it. And one of the beautiful things we see when people come in interviews, it's not so much, yes, you have vastness and openness and you, know, you become softer and all those things, but also you've just done it. You've just sat through it all, through the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And you begin to feel in these nine days the rhythms of life, like the desert is this big ocean of sand. And the waves come in and they go out and the wind comes and goes. And the mind and the feelings, all the, all the rivers of experiences come and go. And you take the one seat in the center of the world and find your Buddha nature. And you trust and people come in, oh, it was so hard, but I got through it. You know, I felt like I was going to grieve forever or weep forever. Or I felt like, you know, I was so, that was so difficult or I was so self-judgmental. And then, then a little meta broke through and I remembered myself and I held myself. And so it's not even patience. Suzuki Roshi says, the bodhisattva, for the bodhisattva, it's not patience. Because that implies you're waiting for something better to happen, Right? Patience and impatience are opposites. They're connected. Said for the bodhisattva, patience turns into constancy. Just the willing heart to say this too. This too. And such a deep trust. As the poet Pablo Neruda said, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. Here's Thomas Merton. He writes about this in advice to a young 
activist. He says, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not perhaps bring about its opposite. As you get used to this, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. And so you come in, and we're not looking for you to have any particular experience. Sometimes they're glorious, sometimes they're terrible. Sometimes the terrible ones are the ones that really teach you constancy and compassion and love and depth. So we're just looking to see that you're still here, basically, because that's what it takes. And in that, this unfolding happens, there comes this deep trust. And it's the trust of mindfulness itself that the space of awareness, like the sky of the desert, is your home. That you become the witness of all things. But not in a detached way, and witness isn't even the right word, that's a sort of transition word, because when you turn and look for the witness, there isn't somebody witnessing. There's the space of knowing. The one who knows becomes the knowing itself. There is mindfulness, pure awareness, And then there's the dance, the play of life. And you come more and more to trust that mindfulness itself can hold and meet and allow all things and rest just here with a loving and liberated heart. So you've been learning this and it's beautiful. And as you learn this, as you learn this trust, It's not just for you, but it's for the world. You know, the world is in many ways, you know, in the throes of a great deal of suffering, as we know. Ecological suffering and continuing injustice and racism and hunger and human-caused difficulties. Howard Zinn, who died not many months ago, the author of People's History of America, and one of the lights, illuminations of, of the compassion in our country. He writes, to be hopeful in hard times is not just foolish or romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. And if we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to respond and to love. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act and the possibility of sending the spinning top of the world in a different direction. This itself in defiance of all that is negative, is a marvelous story and a marvelous accomplishment of humanity. It's it's not just a beautiful thing. um, But it's a kind of responsibility and it is, um, as he says, it's it's a kind of defiance. It's... It's an act, it's a revolutionary act.
to be the bodhisattva on that boat even when the storms come. And it's a beautiful thing to do. Now you hear this and then it starts to sound awfully serious, right? And in fact, when I think of my bodhisattva teachers, they were all so joyful. Mahagosananda, the Gandhi of Cambodia who walked over and over even during the wartime doing leading marches through places that had been mined to take people back to their villages, chanting loving kindness through every province in Cambodia with hundreds of people following him. He was a really joyful being. He said, what is this path worth if we can't feel joy? So bodhisattvas are also playful. You know, I mean, it is, it's an amazing dance and ride. Life is not a journey to the grave to be arrived at in a beautiful, well-preserved body, but rather to slide in broadside, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. <laughs> you know, how do you do it? What way are you going to do it? And so the Buddha says, live in joy even among those who are troubled. Live in joy even among those who are sick. Live in health among those who are sick. Live in joy in this world. This is his instruction, the happy one. And to do that, you can't be terribly idealistic, honestly. Enlightenment, says the great Zen teacher Seng Sen, the enlightened heart, um, to be enlightened, is to be without anxiety about imperfection. It's imperfect. And not only is it imperfect, we're imperfect. As the Zen master Ryokan, beloved poet of Japan, wrote, last year a foolish monk, this year no change. <laughs> it's playful, you know. A story for you, a couple more stories. Do I have time for this? Sure, why not? Well, I bet I got a few more, so you'll have to. I just, um, in 69, right out of graduate school, I was drafted into the army. After I got new clothes, a haircut, vaccinations, I filled out a stack of forms. One asked for my religion. Feeling rebellious, I decided to choose for myself a new religion, and I wrote Druid, parentheses, reformed. Two weeks later, I received my dog tag stamped with my name, social security number, blood type, and druid reformed. I wondered how the army would administer last rites for that. Stationed stateside for several months before shipping out, I was looking forward to a, a, a camping weekend with this date when the commandant canceled all weekend passes. Our officer was afraid there were large anti-war protests that his soldiers might go join them. I was determined to go camping with my girl. Discovering there was to be a full moon that particular weekend, I requested a two-day pass to celebrate a religious holiday. <laughs> the commanding officer was skeptical. What the hell religion are you? I told him I was a druid and that the last full moon before the winter solstice was our high holy day. He demanded to see my dog tags, so I showed them to him. He looked in stunned silence for a moment and then granted me the pass. As I was on my way out, he said, wait, wait a second, don't you guys kill goats? 
No, sir, I said, that's the orthodox. I'm reformed. <laughs> you know, your, your family and friends don't want you to become a Buddhist, you know. Spare them the religiosity. Um, they want you to be a Buddha. They want you to be a bodhisattva. It's not about putting on some new, you know, spiritual act uh, and so forth. It's actually being willing just to play with this circumstance with a virtuous and constant heart, with your commitment to say, yes, this too is the place of awakening. This too is the place of shared love. It's not about perfecting yourself or even the world, really, even with its sorrows. It's perfecting your love. That's all. That's the bodhisattva. And you know this. And then what comes from it is this natural response of compassion in the face of the struggles and the deteriorating environment and the things that need to be responded to. You feed the hungry. You know, you help those who are suffering, not because you're supposed to or it's some great thing to do, but because what else is there to do? Here we are together. I remember this science fiction book I read a long time ago. Some of you may know um, Jason Scott Card's the book called Speaker for the Dead. It's an amazing series of visionary books. Um, and it was really about giving a voice to those who are voiceless. As the bodhisattva, as you get quiet, you become the voice for the owls, as some people did. You become the voice for the tortoises out there that many of us saw, for the stones, for the dharma, for the interconnectedness. Not because you're supposed to, but because it's what you know and who you are. And it doesn't have to be this great thing. Now I'll be like Gosananda and, you know, walk through Cambodia or Congo or whatever it happens to be. It can be the smallest things. There was a note that was found in San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge. It said, if one person smiles at me on the way to the bridge, I won't jump. One moment, one moment of, one moment of your smile or your love Sometimes, not always, but sometimes can make a difference. Not huge things. So there was this, there was this um, BBC television show about the siege of Leningrad, which happened um, 60 years ago. And they were interviewing people who lived through three years when the Nazi army had surrounded Len Leningrad, 700 days or something, through two and a half years. Um, and a huge number of people died. A third of the population of the city and just terrible, harsh winters and hardly any food. And they interviewed this old woman who was a child then and she described what it was like for the television. And they asked, what got you through? And she said, come with me. And she told the story. She said, um, I was eight, nine years old. My mother sent me out to get our bread ration. And it was sleeting rain, cold, and I went and I stood in line and I got our bread and I was walking out to the street from the, from the shop and I slipped and fell into this mud puddle and the bread fell into the mud. And I just sat there weeping 
And another woman who walked out of the shop came over to me and tore her bread in half and gave me a piece of her bread. She said, now come. And the camera kind of followed her down the long, narrow corridor of her apartment in St. Petersburg. And she went into the kitchen and opened the cabinet and pulled out this domed porcelain bowl and took the top off. And inside was a, was a kind of cotton napkin. And she took it out and she unfolded the napkin. And in the middle of it was a piece, a little piece of bread that she had saved. And she said, this is what kept me going. And of course, it wasn't the bread itself, but it was that moment of that woman saying, here, we too, me too, us too, together. So it's not that the bodhisattva has to do it in some, you know, grandiose inflated way. You know this already. You can do it as an artist, as a parent, as a business person. You know, one of the greatest teachers in Burma in the last hundred years was the, you know, minister of finance and the head of the, you know, all the monetary system when Burma was free under the free government, who happened to be a great meditation master. You can do it as a business person, as a teacher you know, or a healer or a cook or whatever it is that you do, it can't be by imitation. It's got to be what's given to you and what comes through you. So a school principal liked to make sandwiches for the homeless in her inner city neighborhood. Several days a week, if she wasn't tired after school, she'd go up and make peanut butter, salami sandwiches, whatever, for the pleasure of it. She'd go down and distribute them, and she didn't care if people thanked her sometimes or not, or she wasn't doing it because they thanked her, but it just felt right to do. After some time, the local media found out about it, and she became a kind of minor celebrity in her area. Inspired by her work, the other teachers and friends began to send her money for her ministry, to their surprise, they all received their money back with the short note that read, make your own damn sandwiches. Right? <laughs> you will do it in your way. And there is no one else who can show you how you have to do it. In these whole tenfold universes, galaxies like the grains of sands on the Ganges and Buddhas awakening in each of these universes. You are one of those Buddhas awakening in your own unique form, using your thoughts and feelings and education and history and understanding, but holding it lightly, knowing that this limited form is not all of who you are, that who you are is vast and timeless, as Thich Nhat Hanh speaks about from that vision of his mother, is that which was never born and will never die. So, you practice as a bodhisattva, not because you're supposed to or you want to be good or something. I mean, I know when I have trouble when I got quite sick this last year and got a bit disoriented and frightened or when I get in things, when I sort of lose my way, which I can sometimes, when I come to out of it, I remember, well, what, what's the compass? What matters to me? And it's the bodhisattva vows that work for me. 
oh, this is what matters. It doesn't matter. You'll find yourself in trouble sometimes, in joy, in sorrow, in success, in failure. You carry this compass in you. You know it. And when you do, your life becomes blessed. Not by the outer circumstances, but blessed from something deep in you that knows somehow you are on the the right road, the, the you are in the, the right place um, to live this life beautifully. Remember I read that passage about black elk standing on Harney Peak at the beginning of the retreat when I spoke of Nachiketa and his journey at the end, how how was Nachiketa gonna find his way back? And then he discovered as Black Elk found standing and having his vision on Harney Peak that in fact everywhere was sacred and that the, that the ground that you stand on, you don't have to find your way back. Where you are is the temple. As the Bodhisattva looks around, this is the temple. Here and on the freeway and in the market, you know, and in your family and in your workplace, where you are is the place of the Bodhisattva. So at the end of Black Elk's life, John Nyhard, who wrote down all of these things in this kind of amazing book, Black Elk Speaks, talks about his final hike up Harney Peak. And here is this Sioux holy man who explained to Nyhart that when death approaches, a Lakota could climb this mountain to see if the great spirit had approved of their life. Rain would fall on those who had the great spirit's approval. And this is the Black Hill, so it's very dry, like here, and rain is really, you know, it's really the blessing. As a young man, Black Elk had this great vision that told him how to save his people and homeland from the soldiers and settlers. And all his years, he worked to fulfill this vision and restore the sacred hoop of life to his people and all who came to that land. However, he felt that in many ways he had failed, that the sacred hoop was broken. The day of his climb, Black Elk was an old man. He dressed in red long johns, moccasins, war paint, and a feathered war headdress. And slowly and laboriously, he climbed to the summit. He was oblivious to the many tourists who stared at him. It was a summer day, all these people going up. Nyhart teased him that he should have picked a day with at least one cloud in the sky, but Black Elk rebuked him, saying that the rain would have nothing to do with the weather. And at top of the peak, not far from the tourists, the old man in his war paint and moccasins lay down on the stones under the blue and cloudless sky. And to his astonishment, Nyhart watched as a few small clouds immediately formed over Black Elk and a soft rain began to fall. And Black Elk wept with relief. He felt that even though he had not succeeded in fulfilling his vision, the Great Spirit was signaling that he had done his best. They were pleased with him. O nobly born, they say to you who are awakening, which is all of you, you now have in your good hands not just the outer forms and practices or the enjoyment of the Dharma or the tools, you have those. But you have the treasure of the Dharma, 
of the wisdom of these thousands of years and more than that of the wisdom that's timeless of who you really are. And this is yours to carry, to inhabit, to remember, to manifest. You have it now and no one can take it from you. And so the Dharma that's good in the beginning and good in the middle and good in the end is in you to carry as a bodhisattva and to bless you and all that you touch. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.